So, Berto, have you seen the new movie, The Girl on the Train? Uh, Gone Girl? Oh, yes. wait. The Girl on the Gone? The yeah. Gone Train? The Girl yes. on the Gone Train. I have seen it. So, let's talk about that. What do you say? Let's do it. This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I am chair of the Couple and Family Therapy Program at Antioch University, Seattle, and I'm also a licensed marriage and family therapist. My name is Humberto Castaneda, and I repair model trains. Today, I want to get into as much psychology as we can regarding this movie. We're also going to talk about the entire storyline, so spoiler alert. Spoilers! If you haven't seen the movie yet, I recommend seeing it. It's, it's not bad. Uh, I th- I'd give it a five or six out of ten. It's worth it. Uh, probably a rental at yeah. the very least. It's not as good as Gone Girl, but it's yeah. good. Right. It's not bad. Right. It's not stylized like Gone Girl. Yeah. And it's not as impactful. Yeah. But it's a good story. I thought, you know, a good classic mystery kind of story. Yeah. And also, just a little bit of a spoiler, spoiler to this episode is... I want to get into the memory and the depiction of memory and the depiction of memory loss and memory recovery. And what I'm going to talk about later is basically the way that the movie portrays it is mostly false. But I'll get into more of that later. Mostly. So, The Girl on the Train, book. twenty. Did you know the book was just published last year? Yeah, yeah. So, actually, they auctioned the rights for the movie before the book was published. Whoa. Yeah, because they... Uh, you know, she she had published a whole bunch of um, kind of fluffy romance novels, not even romance novels, just like fluffy, they call them chiclet uh, novels, under a pseudonym. And then she was like, okay, I guess I'll try this other route. And for and they sent the script, or they sent the, the early draft to some producer or something. They're like, ooh, I want this. Whoa. So they auctioned the movie before the book was even, I think before it was even finished. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder if it's one of those things where, you know, the Deep Impact and the day after mm, phenomenon yeah. where it's like Gone Girl and the girl on the train, <laughs> you know, two different studio houses. Could be, yeah. will Think the same story, you know, try to oh, make the same. Yeah, maybe because Gone Girl came out how long ago? Uh, last year, was just it? a year ago. So maybe it could have been one of those things where, ooh, that did well. Do we have others like that? Ooh, look at this, look but at this book. if you're saying that the they bought it before it was published, yeah. it probably was before... Yeah, that's true. Anyway. That's true. British author Paula Hawkins. It was a New York Times fiction bestseller for 13 consecutive weeks. So it wasn't really a bestseller? It, yeah, it was <laughs> the bestseller in the fiction category. It occupied the number one spot in the UK hardback book chart. That sounds dirty. For 20 weeks, which is the longest any book has ever been number one, which means it beat Harry Potter and all those other books, which is interesting. That's crazy. Okay, so mainly what we're going to talk about today is the adaptation, but um, I heard that it's actually pretty close to the book. I don't know if you want to talk about it later, but there are some key differences from what I understand. Okay, so you can sprinkle that in. Okay. Adaptation a year later, we just saw it, 2016. Uh, yeah, the key differences that I immediately saw was that instead of it being set in London and England, it's set in New York City or New York State. And But they have a British lead, right. uh, an English lead, and everyone else is uh, supposed yeah. to be American or Canadian. You, I, don't, you don't know. I don't know that the setting matters too much in the end, especially if you haven't read... Like, if you read the book, you might be attached to that setting. Yeah. But if you haven't, I don't know that the setting really no, makes No, no, it doesn't make difference. any difference at all. But why not make it in London? Yeah, that's true. I mean, <laughs> why change it? It's just just an example, I think, of just how 
stupid Americans are when it comes to this sort of thing. It's like, unless the story has an American major element, they won't go see it or they won't think people will go see it. You know, it's like how Narcos, this story isn't about Colombia. That's true. It's about these, this American blonde haired, blue eyed guy who goes to Colombia, which is the true star of the whole, you know, seven years of in Tibet is not about Tibet (laughs) and not about the Dalai Lama, but about this, this, this Aryan German who actually, who's played by Brad Pitt and goes to Tibet. It's not, it's the same. It's always the same thing. It always drives me crazy. It's like there's a scandal with the new Bruce Lee movie coming out, the birth of the dragon or something like this. No, no, you're not Bruce Lee. Oh, really? Yeah, oh, where I the... thought you were talking about Mulan because they're making a live action. <laughs> they're making a live action with Mulan, and Disney was going to have the main lead guy, an American oh, guy. Oh, I didn't hear that. Actually. No, this is a a new movie that's coming out very soon or something uh, about like Bruce Lee's early years in the states. But apparently, the main character isn't Bruce Lee; it's like some white dude or something. Yeah. So there was another kind of scandal. Though. Yeah, it, it drives me crazy. This happens all the time, and. It's it's stupid. People <laughs> David Carradine. <laughs> either every either the studios are stupid or the audience is stupid or everyone's stupid, I don't know. <laughs> but it, it drives me like for instance, the best movie about or the most well produced, most expensive movie about the internment camps, which my family my family was imprisoned during right. World War Two. The Japanese intern. They were American citizens born in the United States, born in the fucking United States, imprisoned by our government during World War II for no reason. And meanwhile, there's millions of Germans, you know, actually doing espionage in the United States. Well, I mean, if there's a poison Skittle, you're trying to eat a bag of Skittles, you know. Right. Just (laughs) imprison all the Skittles. And there's only been one movie... And, of course, it's from a white guy's perspective who falls in love with a Japanese oh, wow. girl. It has, it's, and, it, and it's mainly about, um, you know, Ethan Hawke and him. Fall, and wow. It's actually <laughs> Snow Falling a Cedars, this book, and it's actually about Bainbridge Island, which is nearby here. Oh, wait. Um, that's the book? Yeah. And that's about the internment camps? Yeah. Oh, I never knew that. Oh. I never watched or read, but I've heard of good things about it. Yeah, well. So, Okay. Produced by the movie, produced by Mark Platt. Do you know what else he produced? No. Mark Platt. Legally Blonde. Jo- what? Josie and the Pussycats. He okay. produced Wanted. Do you know Wanted, the movie? Oh, uh, yes. Ugh. I kind of liked it. It was okay. No, 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 no. No, especially if you've read the graphic novel. Yeah, I'm sure. Just like- Scott Pilgrim versus the World. That one was that one's pretty good. That's a great, also yeah. based on a comic. Uh, Drive. He produced Drive. Oh, right. That was good. Into the Woods. Oh, that was a, that was good too. That yeah. was good. Bridge of Spies. I haven't seen that. Oh, that's it's okay. Mary Poppins, which is coming out in 2018. Mary Poppins. It's a new Mary re- Poppins return. Yeah. Oh. And a new and a Wicked movie. Oh, that I'm. Oh, depends. I hope it's the Broadway version, not the book. And the Little Mermaid. There's a new Little Mermaid movie coming out. Oh, uh, what a live action! I don't know. Is this what we come to? Like, okay, guys, we're fully out of ideas. Totally. What do we do? Absolutely. <laughs> Uh, directed by Tate Taylor, he he's uh, a newish director. He directed The Help. Oh, that's a, that was a lauded film, right? Like, yeah. Have you seen it? No. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, it's touching, but it's not. Was very, it nominated or something? Yeah, okay. but it's not very sophisticated. Again, from the pers- from the perspective of a white woman. Okay, the whole oh, the whole movie is about black people in the South. During, during slavery? The, during, no, I think it's during oh, like slavery. the 60s. Oh, okay, okay. 
And essentially it's like slavery 2.0, you know, where the black women in the South are the help in these, in these white rich houses. And of course it's told from Emma Watson's, Uh, uh, Emma Watson, Emma Stone, Emma Stone's perspective. Emma Stone, isn't that her name? I have no idea. Anyway, same <laughs> thing with that that new movie from the guy who made Elizabeth Town and almost oh, famous which, uh, new, which movie? Cameron Crowe. Cameron Crowe? The one in Hawaii. Again, because they're making a movie about Hawaii, okay? Oh. And, oh, well, we got to get a, an Asian uh, American, a Hawaiian sure. person in there. So let's get Emma Stone, this what? blonde, <laughs> blue-eyed girl, to play a quarter- Japanese girl. Oh, man. Now, I have quarter Japanese nieces and sure. nephews who are blonde-haired, blue-eyed. So that's not unheard of. But again, if you're trying to make a movie about Hawaii right. and every and the leads are blonde and blue-eyed, because I think the lead was, um, what's his face? Uh, God, I forget it. I always forget that guy's name. Anyway. From Matthew I'm, McConaughey or something? No. <laughs> I, um, Oh man. Okay. Anyway, but but they're not Hawaiian looking. No. And this is that that's sad cuz I love Cameron Crowe. Yeah. I bet you the soundtrack's going to be kick ass. But has he made a good movie in the last 10 years? Well, has he made a movie in the last 10 Yeah, years? he's he's made a he's what made a couple movies. Uh, I could look it up. But anyway, Tate Taylor he also made, so he made The Help, he also made Get On Up, the James Brown biopic or biopic as okay. as you would call it and as I used to call it. Stars Emily Blunt, who's married to Jim from The Office. Did you know he's married to? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And she used to date Michael Buble. She's a lucky girl. <laughs> yeah. They seem like actually a great couple. Yeah. Um, she was in The Devil's the Devil Wears Prada, Charlie Wilson's War. Wait, Sun- the, Emily Blunt was in The Devil Wears Prada? Apparently. Maybe a small part. Oh. But what I, the first movie I saw her in was Sunshine Cleaning. That, that's yeah. really that I really remember. That's she, good. She was... The, Queen Victoria and the Young Victoria. She was in the Wolfman. Do you remember seeing Wolfman in the theater? Oh, you and yes. Me? Oh, you yes. hated that. I liked it. Uh, I liked it. No. The, the Adjustment Bureau. <laughs> she was in Looper. The oh wi- yeah, Looper. Right. The Wind Rises, which is uh, the the Japanese cartoon. She's the, she's a voice. By the way, when the movie started, which movie? Uh, the Wolfman. No, no, the one we're talking about, Gone Girl too. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the Girl on the Train. When the movie started. They had just played a preview for the new Mr. and Mrs. Smith movie with Brad Pitt and Marion Marion Cotillard. Girl. Yeah. And so when the movie started and I saw Emily Blunt, I, I, I didn't connect who she was at first and I thought it was Marion Cotillard. Oh. Because there's a, a resemblance there. Because all white people look the same? Yeah, yeah. She was also in Edge of Tomorrow, which I love. I love yeah, I really like that one. She was in Into the Woods and Sicario. Have you seen that movie yet? No. My I God. know. I'm missing out. I can't it's believe it. It's one of the best movies I in know. the past 10 years, I'm telling you. I know. I have to watch it. I, I, I'm sure I will love it. Uh, and she's uh, going to play somewhat a voice in a cartoon, My Little Pony. <gasps> what they're making? Wait, 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 They're making like a full feature yeah. length? Next, next year. Because I love My Little Pony, man. Okay. I'm turning bronyish. So okay. well, I think by turning bronyish, I'm turning bronyish. You're, you're already I really a, think so. Yeah. Uh, and of course, Justin Thoreau is Tom. Yeah. Married to Jennifer Aniston from American Psycho. American Psycho. He was in I Shot Andy Warhol, which oh, is I never a, saw that. a great movie. He was in Romy and Michelle's High School Reunion. I did see that. great movie. Then he was in American Psycho, which of course. And he's in the uh, Left Behind. Is yeah, it? he's in that yeah. TV show. Mulholland Drive, Charlie's Angels, The Baxter. <gasps> 
Oh my god, he was in Mulholland Drive. Yeah, totally. I totally forgot about that. Yeah, it's a great movie. That's part. It might be one of my favorite David yeah. Lynch. He's in the He's in the Baxter, which is a great, great movie. Mammy Vice, Inland Empire, not a great movie, but you know, it's when David Lynch started to lose his. I like him. I like Justin. Thoreau. Yeah, uh, Tropic Thunder. He was also the writer and and executive producer of Tropic Thunder. Which is what? Yeah. He was the writer of Iron Man 2. Wait, wait, wait. Who was? Justin Theroux. He didn't write Iron Man 2, did he? Yeah. We're one of the writers. He's a writer? Yeah. Megamind. He was an executive producer of Megamind. Oh, my God. I have so much he was new admiration. one of the writers of Rock of Ages, and he's one of, at least one of the writers of Zoolander 2. Yeah, I have <laughs> a full man crush on this guy now. <laughs> okay, story. Let's get into it. So I'm just going to talk mainly about Rachel and Megan's storyline because... The movie lays it out in a non-sequential manner, you know, the full yeah. story. And so it. So I'm just going to walk us through a timeline to kind of analyze these characters. Which, by the way, one of the changes, is, from my understanding between the book and the movie, is that in the book, there was a lot more... It was, it was a lot more the story of three women. Yeah. Whereas in the movie, it's kind of the story of one woman with a couple of side right. characters. Right. I think it has all three women... It says it from their point of view, yeah, kind of like Game of Thrones, or I think Gone Girl was told in a similar way, mm. you know, where it was from his point of oh, view, that's true, yeah. and then from her point of view. Okay, so Rachel, she's the main character. Rachel, uh, in the we don't see this in the movie, or I think in the book, but Rachel gets married to Tom. She has the perfect husband and the perfect house, and she decorates the house and it's this beautiful home. They seem wealthy, right? Like, yes. These yeah. are wealthy houses. People like. are always wealthy in the movies. <laughs> That's true. I mean, that house is probably three, four million dollars. That's true. <laughs> I mean, it's like right, you know, on the ocean or, you know, the trains going by, there's no house, but you know. And unless the movie is about it, you never see them struggling financially no. in the least. <laughs> no. People, actually, I'm not the first person to point this out. There's, there's whole pieces on this that, even in sitcoms, when people are playing poor people, if you really just analyze the property that they're living in, they're usually multi-million dollar <laughs> homes. You know, like they never show people living in actual shitty apartments that, you know, because just think about... That wouldn't film very well. <laughs> right. Because just think about the, the apartments you and I have lived in in our lifetime. Right. And, and, and even the mid-range ones are way shittier than the shittiest version of a house you've ever seen, particularly in the these kinds of movies. Wasn't know? like the friend's apartment, like wouldn't that, there was this right. thing about like, it'd be worth so much money. Though. Exactly. It's probably $5 million. <laughs> it's like a loft. It's up, it has a view, it has a deck. It's yeah. humongous. You can see naked people from your window. Yeah. By the way, I recently watched a couple old episodes of friends and those six are basically supermodels. They, but aside from Chandler, who's also very good looking, all of them, even um, that's true. Even what's his face, uh, uh, Phoebe? No, the other uh, well, Ross. Fe- Ross. Even yeah. he is just a. I mean, all six of them are strikingly good-looking people. That's true. And when I was watching it in the '90s, I never thought about. it. I, I didn't thought, think of that. Either. But if you look at them now, especially, I mean, I always thought of Courtney Cox as, as like, oh, she's great looking, and I liked Rachel. She was my favorite. Yeah, but that was. And then, and then I thought, what's uh, Joey? Oh, he's kind of, he's a cute guy, yeah. you know? But if you w- just watch an episode, like watch him uh-huh. in, you know, as they move around in the world, like right. they're just, a, all six of them just incredibly attractive <laughs> people. 
Um, and I think it still holds up. I think it's I think it's still a pretty funny show. I mean, you know, it's usually based on pretty yeah. you know silly premises. But anyway, okay. Rachel marries Tom. She has the perfect life, and she but she finds out that she can't have kids. Right. And this is a major part of the story here because it kind of sets up every. Uh, there's a few key traumas that happen in these people's lives, and this is the key for her. They can't have kids, and it's a long, difficult process of her trying to have kids and not, you know, not being out with the kids. So, can you see how this might uh, traumatize somebody, Berto? What do you think? Oh, absolutely. I mean, if you're invested in that, and that's, you know, you've mentally grown up with a career path, so to, so to speak, about your life, and one if if one of those things is, oh, you know, and I'll get married and I'll have kids, and you get to that point in your life, and you're like, okay, well, it's time to have kids, and Oh, it's not working. Well, let's let's try again. Oh, it's still not working. Is there something wrong with me? You know, I mean, that's got to be really, really hard to deal with. Right. So she becomes depressed. She starts drinking a lot to cope. And she often blacks out from drinking, even while she's married to Tom. One thing that was unclear to me is if she... Well, two things that were unclear to me was... They made it look in the memory, and of course the memories were shown to be unreliable, but they made it look like he was supportive throughout, through the process of trying to have children. Right. In the one scene they showed him, he seemed supportive. And, but we don't know if he was already maybe cheating or things like that. And then two, I didn't know if she started drinking before she found out about the cheating. Or yeah, that. right. There's a lot of un, uncertainty, yeah. and I don't think the book necessarily fleshes all that out either. Okay. But... At the very least, she developed a drinking problem at some point. But I think they intimated that it started when she was having trouble. Yeah, okay. yeah because her life was going well up until that point. Okay. Her Tom, her husband, leaves her uh, at, at this point, and she blames herself because she can't have kids. She blames herself for drinking a lot. She blames herself for what she thinks is she was a perpetrator of violence. That's right. Uh, Tom convinces her... You know, when she wakes up in the morning, it's like... You and this were, is one of the twists. Yeah. You were violent with me last night when, in fact, Tom was violent with her, and she might have been trying to defend herself, and then... But yeah. she's so drunk, she blacked out, and then he would yeah. manipulate her to think that she was the... You know, and... By the way, that was one of the really effective moments in the movie for me. Yeah. Like, there were things I didn't quite care so much for, but the moment where she's talking to Phoebe, uh, I don't know her yeah. character's name, but uh, Phoebe from Friends... And you have that kind of reveal where what she remembers of her monstrosity yeah. was totally not right. Right. That was really powerful. Yeah. I did not see that coming. Right. That was, that was a pretty effective storytelling. Yeah. And I think, I think part of it is they actually did a good job in making her uh, sympathetic in spite of those memories where she seemed monstrous. Right. Like, I was already feeling sympathy for her. And then all of a sudden, it's like, oh, my God, I feel so sorry for you. Well, we have to take a break, and when we get back, we will continue this discussion. What do you say? Let's take a break. Okay, so we're back, but before we get into the, the analysis here, I just want to announce to everyone that we have a sponsor. It's our first sponsor, Loot Crate. What do you know about Loot Crate, Burrow? You're a kid at heart, right? Yeah. I'm a kid at heart. Star Wars. Oh, yeah, yeah. And so, but you know, 
nowadays, you know, you're an adult, you might be a little busy, maybe you're in school, maybe you got a lot of classes. And so when do you get chances to go downtown, go to the mall, go to toy stores and find cool stuff for yourself from all the things that you actually care about? Oh. You don't. You don't have this kind of time. Yeah. So Loot Crate steps in to solve that problem, my friend. Wow. Basically, once a month, I think it's once a month, right? You'll so. get like this like loot crate like in video games, you know, yeah. like when you like find a thing, you open it and dun, 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 right? Yeah. With like all sorts of cool goodies about like movies and video games and comics and things that are like really neat. And they're rare, like not there's some sometimes these are items that you can only get through the service too. And you can choose different genres. You mm-hmm. can choose like comics or Star Wars or it's October now, so it's Halloween. And there's there's various different options you can you can choose from. That's right. So and bro, you, you're a born salesman. I'm 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 personally <laughs> sold. I, I, you, we did not prepare for this. Re- if you listen to the last time I talked about this, it was just me by myself. <laughs> I like totally stumbled my way through that conversation. It was ridiculous. But anyway, I'm not only a customer. I'm also a client. Oh, so <laughs> if you go to lootcrate.com and you use the promo code Psychology, it's mm-hmm. Psychology people. Use that code. I'm I'm 95 sure you get a discount and. I know for sure we get a kickback of about $20 for every person who signs up. So, Do they have action figures of us? They should. They should. They should, yeah. You kind of look like the you kind of look like uh Poe uh, uh from uh, Oh, that's true. I could be Poe. And I look like every Asian. <laughs> okay, so let's get back into it here. All right. So, uh, Rachel, she gets fired because of her drinking, so her life is really going down the tubes. Um, and she just rides the train to and from London. And she's or, been out of work for a year. Right. By the way, this is another one of those. I guess maybe in London you can do it because I think they have the, the dole, right? Like you, you get free money from the government. Well, she's living with her friend. Yeah. And, and she's basically sleeping on her couch for, right. for free. Yeah. Okay. But it's like, yeah, but how does she afford? Right. Yeah. Oh, the, okay. And this leads me to the second thing that I heard was different from the book that is sort of significant. Apparently in the book... The character, Rachel, is f- very frumpy, overweight. She's oh. gained weight, and she looks terrible. Her clothes are too ah. small because she can't afford new clothes, and she's grown heavier than she was when she bought those clothes. And she's just a mess, which, by the way, makes a lot more sense when that scene in the movie when the, the guy, said, the, the, the husband of the other girl says to her, I would never date someone like you or something like that. Because right. Emily Blunt is a pretty good-looking gal, right. even when they make her look right. sort of alcoholic. Yeah, that's <laughs> another thing in the movies that they never get quite right. Because you remember, uh, what's it? What's, oh, God. The, the girl, the American actress who plays a British girl. It's a comedy. There's a new one coming out oh, where she has yeah, a baby. Yeah, yeah. The, the Bridget Diary. Bridget Jones Diary. Thing, yeah. She in the first movie she's supposed to be fat and ugly right. and it's she's not fat. No, no. She's not. She ugly. weighs like 5 more pounds than she's supposed yeah. to. <laughs> you know, uh, on average to uh, American men and women, she's pretty thin at the oh, time, yeah. you know what I mean? So, yeah. It's another one of those things in movies that they I'm sure they start out and go, "Oh, maybe we should really make it authentic" and then they really just kind of gravitate <laughs> toward the mean. Anyway, so she rides the train to and from London or New York, depending on your venue here. And while looking at these houses where she actually used to live, she sees uh, this this neighborhood. She sees Megan uh, and Scott, whom she doesn't know. 
and she sees there these be- this beautiful couple, and she sees Megan. She says, "Oh, she she's everything I want to be," and she creates this fantasy life. She calls them in the in the book. She calls them like Jess. She like makes up names for yeah. them that aren't their real names, and she has this total fantasy life for this couple, and. Uh, you know, because she's depressed and she's an alcoholic and she doesn't, she just rides the train for no reason. <laughs> and, and so she escapes into this fantasy life of these people. Presumably also she's looking at, out at the window to see if she can see her ex-husband. Cause it's right next to the house that she used to live in. Right. Yeah. So this is where I could get into some little, a little bit of analytic stuff here is that when we are suffering from pain in our mind or psychic pain, we will uh, resort to different defense mechanisms to protect ourselves from that pain. So the pain she's suffering from is just tremendous amount of self-loathing and self-reproach and guilt and self-esteem problems. And I'm, it's all my fault. I was the one who drank. I pushed my husband away. If it wasn't for me being a loser, I'd still have that life. Well, one of the things that people will resort to is that we need to have a good aspect of ourself. We need to believe in a good aspect of ourself, right? right? Everyone needs to have self-esteem. We also recognize at times that there's bad things about us, right? Well, when all we can see is bad things about us, we actually believe, and this is a psychoanalytic concept, that we cannot hold on to the good aspects of ourselves within ourselves because we believe that we will destroy that. The, bad, the overwhelming bad part of us will destroy any good in us that's possibly there. So what we will do is we will idealize other people. I see. We will put our good aspects into someone else. We'll idealize another human being. In that way, it's... Putting, it's putting our good qualities safely in someone else. And then we watch that other person very intently, usually from afar, because if the closer we get, the more we realize you can't idealize somebody. But you can idealize someone from afar, and in so doing, you can protect the good aspects of yourself by, by depositing them in someone else. Does that make sense? Oh, interesting. So that's one idea. Also, fantasy can be... A defense against pain. So she loses herself in this fantasy world and she makes up these names for this couple and she idealizes them. And it becomes an occupation. Yeah. So she can kind of feel like she's doing something productive when she's not really. Right. And actually, as I say this, I didn't know that this author actually wrote romance novels. It kind of makes you wonder about the author and how she might lose herself in fantasy, right. what, what she's trying to deny or something, right? Because yeah. essentially that's what she does, right? She, that's true. She writes yeah. stories about beautiful people and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, so in the movie, I don't know if in the book, but in the movie they show Rachel having a lot of rage. She, she has moments of rage, like when right. she's in the bathroom, and she has elaborate fantasies about killing Tom and... You know, which is actually more common than we than we'd like to think. Can you have you ever experienced this in the real world? People having elaborate fantasies of wanting to hurt, like excess or yeah, yeah, someone who's been humiliated or cheated on or harmed or something, and or broken up with, and they well, have. I guess not directly, 
Um, you hear well, enough have. things online, but well, I have lots of clients will talk about this. Maybe they, I don't know, just feel more comfortable to tell their therapist and not, not their friends <laughs> would be my guess. But I, I've actually experienced it so often that I I've come to consider it just a normal part of of difficult breakups. If you're the one being dumped, it's a it's a maybe even a biological oh, thing. Oh my god, what am I talking about? I'm sitting here like, yeah, no, I've never. Uh, what, my parents. <laughs> oh, really? When my dad, when my mom left, my dad was so enraged, and I don't. I would go as far as to say that maybe even to this day, he probably harbors fantasies of of retribution. Right, and we get alarmed by that because it because we watch a lot of stupid news stories where people actually carry out on these thoughts or movies where people... But the vast, vast majority of people that have those fantasies don't ever act on them. Right. They're, they're seemingly a normal part of, of grief and of recovery from a, from a breakup like that. And I've actually worked with people on... I don't actively pers- encourage these thoughts, but I encourage them to discuss them with me, which means that they might go into detail about the thoughts that go on in their head. Scary. It, it is scary, but over time, I've, I'm completely unscared of them because it's just so common. And no one has ever acted on them. And yeah. then unfortunately, the one in one million time that someone acts on it, you couldn't have seen it coming because they, right. they all said the same thing. Right. Yeah. Uh, and... Everyone thinks when they sit down on my couch and talk about it that they are perhaps one of those one in a million people. And I reassure them and, and I say, well, do you think you're actually going to do it? And they'll say, no, I, I, I could never do something like that. But I have these thoughts. And does yeah. that mean I'm crazy? And I'm like, no, it's just a normal part of, of, you know, it's a normal part of recovery. And it can last for a long time. Like in the case with your dad, yeah. it might last for, for decades. But if it goes unresolved, I guess. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I I. I think that it's te- it's tempting even as a clinician to say there's a time limit on this sort of thing. But the more I study human beings and the more I look at the research, the more I realize that grief and recovery from these events might not ever fully resolve. Mm-hmm. You know, they they can be so difficult. Of course, we always want to seek resolution and moving on, so to speak. But for some people, it can be so intense and so difficult that they never really do. Right. Okay. So... Rachel seemingly is calling and texting Tom, and Anna, who is Tom's new wife, uh, is noticing these texts and calls. And they're like nonstop. Right. And Rachel thinks that it's her because she drinks to blackout frequently. Yeah. And so everyone thinks that it's Rachel, but it's, but it's not Rachel calling. It's actually Megan calling and texting during some of this time. And you... Uh, when we find out about that later is on. Is she using Rachel's name or something? I think, no, it's like, remember, it was like, no, it's like a blocked number or something. Oh, got it. Got and it. so Anna sees blocked number and yeah. she's like, oh, of course it's, right. it's Rachel. Right, I forgot about that, right. Yeah. Okay, so one day while drunk, Rachel sees Megan suppo- supposedly kissing another man on her porch. That's right. And this, uh, which is her therapist is is. And this is, the co- this is the, this is the, you know the woman she's been ideal idealizing this right. whole time as the and like you were saying putting all her good things into her 
Right. And so she sees this and it destroys her because she sees Megan throwing it all away and she completely flips on, you know, she's in love with Megan and then she sees Megan kissing, but she's not actually kissing this man. She's actually just hugging the therapist because the therapist is consoling her. But, which, yeah. which is which has all sorts of yeah. fucked up ethics. Yeah. It's like, what's he doing at her house? But he's a Latin therapist, so it's okay. Yeah. <laughs> what is he, Argentinian or something? Uh, in the Chilean? book, apparently, he's supposed to be Indian, but it's, he's clearly Latino uh, in the movie. Yeah. So Rachel, so Rachel gets angry at Megan. She gets off the train. She's super drunk, and she goes to confront Megan. But in this tunnel, she runs into Megan and Tom instead. And she doesn't, at first she has no idea what actually happened. She like blacks out. Right. But in reality, what happened, well, and she thought, she thought that she ran into Tom and Anna and she thought that Anna hit her. That's right. But in fact, she ran into Tom and Megan and Tom hit her. And she also thought this random redhead guy, Andy was his name, was trying Trying, to attack her, but he was actually just trying to help her because these bullies came around. But anyway, you find all that out later on. Uh, Megan turns up missing. They eventually found out Megan is, is dead. Rachel tells Scott, Megan's husband, that Megan was having an affair with her therapist, which actually isn't true. Um, Megan was having an affair, but not with her therapist. And Rachel and Scott try to solve the murder. And this is a part that in the movie they don't portray because in the book they have a relationship, they have sex. Oh, what? Yeah. <laughs> I'm pretty sure if I'm... If oh, I'm, my God. But yeah. And then Scott finds out that Rachel was lying to him about how Rachel knew Megan because, you know, he's... Whoa, okay. You know... That has uh, a whole whole other dimension. Yeah, and then Scott actually locks Rachel in a a room in the book, apparently. Whoa. And and Rachel thinks she's going to die. Because she thinks Scott might have killed her. Well, yeah, and at that point, she's like, oh, Scott killed Megan because he's this controlling guy. Uh, Okay, Rachel... You know, they... they, That was one of my complaints about the movie. They actually could have... Uh, done a little better job with the misdirection. Yeah. Because there, there came a point at which I was convinced it was either Justin Thoreau or his wife. Really? You were convinced? Because I didn't suspect Tom at all. Uh, Justin? Oh, the, the husband? Yeah. Well, the reason I... Okay, maybe it's biased. It's just... I've seen him in enough roles, and especially because of American Psycho stuff, because like, <laughs> it, it had to be in my mind. But honestly, I started thinking it was his wife. Uh, I was like, oh, it's the wife. Well, you know what? I never even thought about it like i i it you know how you do that yeah. you know, when you're you're like oh okay so who did it you know yeah. like i don't remember this ever, one we were just following the trip i was just kind of like in the movie in the moment mm-hmm. and just feeling like we, there was just a big question mark I there see. you know but if i would have thought about it i mean definitely rachel but i don't know the movie the trailers made it seem kind of dark and so i think a part of me actually thought maybe rachel did it you know yeah i guess what I hadn't seen the previews at all. They made I, it really sinister. I watched the previews after. They almost made after. it look like a horror movie. That's right. I watched the previews after, and I'm like, okay, they oversold the concept in the previews. Right. <laughs> so Rachel starts therapy with the therapist to check him out, I think to see if he killed Megan, because in the book, I think she starts thinking that he killed Megan. And he actually turns out to be a good therapist, and he helps Rachel to recover her memories while she was blacked out, which I'll get more into the science in a second. Rachel recovers a memory of the night that Megan went missing, 
and she realizes that it wasn't Anna and Tom under the overpass. It was Megan and Tom. And then she pieces all that together and she figures, oh, it must have been Tom that killed Megan. Right. So then Rachel goes to Anna to tell Tom, you know, to, to tell Anna that Tom killed Megan. You know, why doesn't she go to the cops? I don't, right. but she goes to Anna. Tom is there. Did they talk about that in the movie? Like, why did she go to Anna and Tom's house to, to tell? Yeah, this is another thing that happens in the movies is no one ever involves the cops until it's like way well, too I guess, late. Well, I guess they made it pretty clear that the cops weren't very supportive of Rachel. Oh, but... But you could go to a different oh, cop. On. Yeah, no. Well, I'm certainly not going, like... Okay, the part that it was really... Like, you don't confront the person you now are very certain has murdered one woman Yeah. when all all there is confronting that person is you, the woman, and another woman, and a baby. Right. Like, that's a dangerous situation. Yeah, side note, <laughs> that detective was annoying the shit out of me the way they wrote her she was very uh one-dimensional you know like and i doubt your story from the beginning yeah (laughs) not only that but the way she doubted was it was like she was over the top you know what i mean anyway so rachel goes to anna to tell uh, her that tom is the murderer tom is there tom confesses to the murder and he kind of threatens the child so anna pulls away because Anna's like oh well he doesn't confess but he, he he doesn't no he doesn't he but he clearly doesn't deny anything yeah. and instead goes and implicitly threatens the child right yeah. and then he attacks Rachel in self-defense Rachel stabs Tom with a corkscrew which was you know very symbolic since she was a a drunk right right I didn't catch that I didn't catch that later until uh. later but but it makes obvious sense now, right. right? And then Anna, in the book as well, finishes Tom off, which is interesting, right? Right. And I would... Okay, so I Wait, saw... Wait, he attacks her with a shot glass. Okay. He smashes a shot glass in her head, which again is also related to alcohol. Right. And then she's the one who stabs him through the neck with the corkscrew. And then Anna comes over and yeah. finishes and him like, off. And like, oh, like... What is she going to do? Oh, my God. She's digging it deeper. Yeah. You can just hear squish, squish. Yeah. And so when I'm, I'm watching this opening night at Cinnabar, you know, it's like that, that it's like a bar slash. Actually, I just yeah, figured yeah. out Cinnabar is cinema and a, and bar. a bar. That's right. We're learning all sorts of things. <laughs> and, you know, they take out every row of chairs and they put tables in. And so mm-hmm. it's like a, basically like a bar restaurant. And there were like 15 uh, 40-year-old drunk women uh, right next to me. Oh, boy. In the movie theater. You know, they seem like nice people. Yes, yes, yes. But they were being a little obnoxious, you know, like oh, they were, no. especially before the movie, like, you know, pretty... Because they all read the book in the book club. Pretty ruckus, you know what I mean? It was fine. <laughs> I guarantee you, this was their book club book. Yeah. And now they were watching the movie together. <laughs> yeah. And they're getting a little sloshed. And then right as... <laughs> <laughs> right, right. As Anna is really just kind of squishing, like, yeah, squishing it in. Yeah, they go crazy, and then one woman yells, "Here's to killing husbands!" Oh my god, yeah. that's horrible. <laughs> yeah. Oh my god. What do you think about that? Well, that's just as bad as like grabbing him by the pussy. <laughs> like that's horrible. I mean. Uh, you know, I think there's like a five ten percent chance that she was being a hundred percent ironic. Yeah, which I hope that's the case. But 
it didn't sound like it. And the and the the whole as I walk, I mean, in the moment, I just sort of chuckled. But as I was walking out, I was like, "Wait a second, let's reverse the gender on that." Yeah, you know, let's, right. Let's imagine a movie in which a husband is is you know f- you know cutting the throat of right. his wife because she was a bad person. Right. You're killing wives, and then ten ten drunk dudes are partying it up right. and w- together, and one of them stands up and says, "Here's to killing wives." I mean, <sighs> ironic. Even if it was, that would be. Uh, yeah, plus, it's a it's a theater. Like you're making a public announcement. Yeah. Now, we can't just obviously just equalize things like that because the context of gender is such that it doesn't translate, you know. And I sort of get why women, if it was sort of an honest, so to speak, joke, uh, I could see how women oppressed and put upon by men in our society. Lots of men spreading, lots of men splaining, lots of domestic violence, lots of, you know, horrible... Well, there's that song, Earl Earl Had to Die. Yeah? You know that song? No. They sing it at karaoke all the time. Really? It's like uh, some guy, Earl, he's cheating on his wife and he's blah, blah. And in the song, she, she kills him with a shotgun or something. Right. And... The, Women love to sing it at karaoke. Right. But, but if there was a song like that about a... Reverse. Reverse, yeah, right. that would be pretty bad. Well, so the difference here is that men kill their wives, husbands kill their wives at enormously higher rates than mm-hmm. wives kill their husbands. Right. Not that wives don't kill their husbands, because they do, out of cold blood. And, and there are women psychopaths, absolutely. But... The context of that joke is within an imbalanced gender landscape. At the same time, I don't like that joke. (laughs) I don't like that joke for a number of reasons. And there's so many other jokes she could have said, you know? And and the fact that everyone kind of laughed at it. I mean, I'm not in everyone's head. Like, stick it to them. Yeah. <laughs> like, stick it to men. You know what I mean? Like, uh, it just, like, it reminds me of this time when I was taking a class in my undergrad. It was a class, for some reason we were watching, um, I think it was a class on, on development, like human development. And we were watching sperm under the microscope, you know, and, and they're like, here is a healthy sperm. And it's like, you know, you know, with its tail, like flapping its way. And then they're like, and here is a a dysfunctional sperm or something, and it's it's going in circles. Uh-huh. And the women start in the because it was mainly nurses. There's a lot of nurses, female nurses. They chuckled a chuckle and started commenting on in such a way that made it seem like this was a gender thing. Do you know what I mean? Like oh. like it's hard to explain, but yeah. they it's it, they were laughing in a way that it was like oh men and their typical s- circular men it, it was that kind of talk yeah it was totally and i remember going in circles you know just like useless you know uh yeah just stupid men going in circles uh how pathetic of them was the kind of vibe in the room and as one of the only males in the room i just remember thinking like what a interesting way of looking at sperm. You know yeah. what I mean? <laughs> like they just show you a healthy one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know that that is something that it ha- that has happened um, in media since the beginning. Is that um, I don't know if it's as a reaction to the reality of men being so overbearing in in the world and yeah. culture, but 
you know, men are portrayed largely as idiots yeah. in in sitcoms and in things. So it's always like, oh, honey, you know, there's all those things. And I grew yeah. up, you grow up watching that and you kind of start feeling like, okay, maybe I need to be the doofy dude yeah. that the woman always comes to save. Yeah. Because that's how it's portrayed in every sitcom. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Now, that's not entirely the entire media landscape. We have no. lots of examples of very competent men. But yeah, that yeah. that's another... I mean, it's more of a reflection of society. It's not necessarily the com- the comedian's fault. It's- Although, actually, you know, it's funny. The competent, competent men in media are often because they're very good at violence. Right, if, if exactly. About it. That's exactly true. Like, Jack Bauer's competent because he right. can torture people. Right. Okay, <laughs> let's talk about Megan. So we've talked about Rachel. Let's talk about Megan's story. So Megan starts out with, this is before the book starts, but they, you know, flesh out this history. Megan's brother dies in an accident when they were both teenagers. This is in the book. And this is her first trauma, and this is a significant loss. Her brother dies in an accident suddenly when they're both teenagers. Wow. As a teenager or as a young, young woman, she falls in love with her first boyfriend, her first love named Mac. And this is possibly fueled by her trying to get her brother back. Not Mm -hmm. sure. She has a baby with Mac. She accidentally kills her baby in the bathtub. She falls asleep with the baby on her. The baby sort of fell down and drowned. And she wakes up and it's this totally traumatizing event. And... Now here we have, you know, maybe it's a total accident, but maybe it's an unconscious recreation of her brother's death. You know, mm-hmm. these these kind of things happen. Her boyfriend leaves her. Mac leaves her, and it's another recreation, just like her brother left her, and just like her baby left her. Right. So now she has brother leaving her, baby leaving her. Uh, Mac leaves her. She becomes depressed and angry. She marries Scott, who's a very controlling guy. And obviously very rich as well, because he has a right. similar humongous house, and he looks like he's 25. Right. Um, <laughs> Let's put it this way. If, if they're not rich, they misrepresented the, sta- the state of affairs in yeah. this thing. <laughs> um, she tries to become the model wife. She be, tries to become perfect for Scott. She's not really herself. She, she's not very genuine. You know, she's, she's kind of putting on an act to live a life that she thinks she should be living. She's not trying to have kids anymore. Right. She she says she hates babies, but of course she probably is just saying that because of a defense against right. uh, her, you know, having the, lost her own baby. May, Megan becomes very bored and lonely, and she, uh, but she's really potentially just suffering from grief and trauma from her life. She gets a nannying job with Tom and Anna, who live down the street, and my, my sense was that she started having an affair. Before the nanny job. Oh, really? Because he, she says something like, why did you even bring me there then? Uh, and he's like, well, I thought it'd be fun to have both of you there. Right. That's right. So, okay. So, somehow she starts having an affair with Tom. With the guy next door, basically. Right. And then she gets a nannying job there, which is just sick. I yep. mean, just sick. He, he basically... And did I get the sense, maybe it was just in the movie, like she seemed a little... No. She seemed very sexually preoccupied, like yeah. obsessed. Right. So there were hints, if she was a real person, of histrionic personality disorder. I don't like that name. Uh, I could call it like sexual attention personality disorder. In all likelihood, as a young child, she was denied attention, and she learned that a way to get attention that everyone needs, honestly. Uh, She can get it by accentuating her 
early cuteness and then later on her sexual, sexual yeah, nature. So there were lots of uh, clues around that, you know, like when she meets the therapist for the, you know, or when she's talking to her therapist, she's very sexual with him. Uh, you know, the way she walks around and da, 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 da. Uh, okay. So Megan hates babies, but she's really describing. She feels abandoned by, by Scott because he travels a lot. That's in the book. I don't think that's in the movie. So she's being abandoned. She's abandoned by brother, by baby, by Mac, yeah. by Scott, and just kind of by Tom because Tom can't be with her all the time. Right. Uh, she quits her nannying job. Uh, more abandonment. Now she's the abandoner of the family. She's coldly just leaves the baby and the family. And uh, by the way, I knew there was an affair happening when the wife tells Tom, is it? Yeah. That, th- that she's quitting. Yeah. Because it's like, uh, you know, such as Megan is quitting, and he's like, "Oh yeah," <laughs> I'm like, "Oh, you're fucking." <laughs> uh, okay, so she goes to therapy finally, in, which is good for her. Uh, in the movie, like we were talking about, she seems very seductive. Now, what histrionic people will do is deep down they really just want attention and love. But because they don't actually trust other people, they will use sexual seduction as a way of getting attention because they don't trust that they're worthy of any attention. Mm. So she uses this, and he actually responds pretty well to it. Now The he, therapist? The therapist, yeah, because he doesn't ultimately have sex with her and doesn't really respond to her sexual comments. He just goes over to her house and right. hugs her. <laughs> but in the book and in the movie, he obviously was struggling, yeah. or his approach to therapy is just not a not a sound approach she shows up at his door he lets her in and then he goes to her house and there there's lots yeah. of touching and and although not inherently necessarily awful right it's not advised let's yeah. just put it that way i mean let me put it this way like as as a man watching the scene where she's trying to seduce him i'm thinking Oh, yeah, that would be pretty tough but then as a as a therapist he he started trying to shut it down but he didn't, right. you know, he was like, oh, don't do something that will make it so we can't work together. But, you know, I think someone with better training or something at that moment might have said, like, oh, we got to stop here. Right. We'll, I'll see you next time. We'll right. talk about this. Or right. Something like yeah. There's all sorts of ways of dealing with it. Like, you know, some people, some, a lot of therapists will say things like, oh, you got to establish rules. You got to like say, hey, you can't mm-hmm. do that. But that's dumb. It it's like people have issues and they portray those issues in therapy and you yeah. can't by establishing rules, you're essentially just not, you're, you're just cutting off a whole bunch of material. Yeah. But when she approaches him physically or especially when he sh- when she shows up at his house, it's like, you just got to be like, you know, I'm really sorry, right. but, and I realize you're in crisis right now. Or, you know, a, a way around that would be like, let's, let's maybe go to a restaurant or like don't come in the house. Right. right. Let's go somewhere else. Or do you have to go to the ER? Right. Or let me call a colleague, a female colleague of mine and she can come over and then, you know, we can like, there's ways of dealing with that, 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 you know, mitigate the, 
mitigate the potential weirdness and yeah. the boundary crossings while absolutely paying attention to her and giving her right. the, the crisis intervention that she needs. Having said that, therapists probably should in that situation just say, I'm terribly sorry, but you're going to have to leave and yeah. we'll, we'll talk about it when you come to my next yeah. session. If you're in a crisis, you can call 911 or the crisis line. I'm really sorry about That's that. Right. Having said that, no one's ever done that to me. That's pretty rare behavior. Right. I can't imagine a client coming to my house and just knocking on the door. And all my clients know where I live because my office, <laughs> yeah. we're, we're in my office that yeah. I practice. And so Which they all. Is, it's funny because I was about to say like, oh man, I, I mean, I would definitely not give my address out to my patients. And then I realized you, they come to your house for their therapy. Right. But you've never had an issue, luckily. Never, never. It's not luckily. It's people are good and normal people. They, well, you've never had me as a patient. The, the thing is, is like because of things like this in the movies, everyone assumes that clients are crazy and do horrible things. Right. Uh, but 99.999% of clients are just like you and me, and they're not stalkers, and they're right. not terrible people. Okay. So back to Megan. She wants Tom to leave his wife, and she calls and texts him a lot, but Anna thinks that those are, those are, those are calls from Rachel. Uh, Megan seems to be very attracted to unattainable men, recreating the original abandonment with her with her brother and her baby and Mac and kind of Scott. She's punishing herself because she – and if she does have this histrionic history uh, as a child of not getting enough love and attention, which there seems to be evidence of, she doesn't believe she's worthy. And mm-hmm. so she only comes at – attachment from an oblique angle without really being genuine and really thinking she's worth the sort of person that would treat her well. Cause Scott wasn't such a great guy. I mean, right. he's abusive and controlling. Well, and even like the, the manner of, of sex, they, they, they show up more than once is like, he just meets her in the woods and they just do doggy style. Oh yeah. I forgot about it's that. It's very, I mean, they do have a scene in the hotel too, but like it, it's, it's kind of like, what is she getting out of this? You right. Know? Right. Megan gets uh, pregnant with Tom. And the first thing I thought was, why wasn't she using birth control? Right. right. I mean, she gets pregnant, you know, so if right. she's not using birth control, why would she yeah. psychologically make that choice? Trying to recreate this mm-hmm. past abandonment, trying to, re- you know, get attention, trying to kind of loop or rope Tom into a relationship that right. he doesn't really want to do. Because he doesn't seem like the guy that would have put on a condom. Right. <laughs> for, for the affair. Her therapist advises Megan to tell the, uh, her husband, Scott, the truth. Do you think this is good advice, Bruno? Her husband. Uh, so the therapist. Is, oh, yeah. So, yeah. So, she, so Megan goes to her therapist and says, I'm pregnant with Tom's baby. And then uh, the therapist is like, well, you got to tell Scott that you're pregnant. Cause, you know. Yeah, that was weird because it's the same therapist had told her that Scott's behavior was unacceptable. Right. That 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 was not, that that was abusive behavior. Mm. Let me side note on that for a second. I cringed when that happened. Although I could absolutely see a therapist saying that, that's not a helpful thing to say. Okay. Um, you know, maybe they're just cutting corners. You, you need to have a larger conversation about domestic violence and control mm-hmm. and intimate partner, con, you know, abuse and all that yeah. kind of stuff. And the way he said it, it was just like. That's unacceptable. Yeah, yeah, you're right. It was like final judgment is yeah. made. Yeah, so, <laughs> I will take no context into. But anyways, so but given that he had said that, it seems 
It, se- it didn't seem to follow that he'd be like, oh, yeah, go tell your what I've said to be a abusive right. boyfriend that you're pregnant with some other dudes. Right. Uh, but you could absolutely see someone that doesn't know anything about therapy thinking that a therapist would say that. Yeah. Because you know? I think that people think that therapists are all about, like, open communication. Oh, yeah. Right? And ethics. Like, you always got to tell the truth no matter what to everyone. Anyone who knows anything about human beings uh, knows that that is not necessarily true. Right. <laughs> to, complete honesty, radical honesty, is a tough thing to pull off. Yeah. And and with you know, so anyway, now, now should Megan be truthful in general? Sure. Should she just run home and tell Scott? No. I mean, it's 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 just it's terrible advice, it's particularly given the DV issues, right? Well, especially like no matter what. I, you know, having gone through therapy, like, I don't remember a time where my therapist, who is a good therapist, told me, here's what, here's what I need you to do right now. Like, right. there was never a directive. Because if, if, for example, the idea was that one of my things that I'm working on is trying to be more honest with my partner, then that would be a theme we would be trying to work through. Right. And when all of a sudden I reveal, look, I am having an affair, like in therapy, let's say I say, yeah. I'm having an affair, right? Well, then you would think that the therapist would be like, okay, well, let's talk to that. And over the next end sessions, we're going to try to deal with it. As opposed to like, well, you got to go tell your partner. Right. Like that, what? Yeah. <laughs> right. Now, incidentally, just brainstorming what I might do is say, well, how do you want to approach this? You know, I would, I would explore yeah. it. I would never tell someone to do it. That's right. If I really felt compelled along those lines, I would say, you got to go to couples therapy or, or Scott has to come in here and we need to like, have a contained conversation about this. In, in fact, wouldn't it be like, okay, my instinct right now would tell me that I might even be a little more protective of saying, uh, you know, in my mind, I might be thinking, oh, this could this could unravel really fast. Yeah. So then maybe trying to start forming some sort of support around the right. situation, like you're saying, couples, things like that. Right. Or a DV advocate yeah. or, or friends to be around when yeah. it happens. Yeah, absolutely. So Megan does follow the therapist's advice, tell Scott, her husband, he naturally gets angry and he hurts her. Then Megan goes to Tom for comfort and tells him that she's pregnant. And Tom tells her to have an abortion. Megan threatens to tell everyone about the affair because she's upset. Tom hits her. Now, in the book, I don't know. I tried to look this up. I don't know if they really portray the murder. I think it's just like, well, Tom killed her because oh, blah, really? blah, blah. But in the book, they, they show it, right? They show... In the movie. Yeah. Or sorry, in the movie, yeah. they show it. And what did you think about that scene? Well, okay. So it was a, it was a gruesome scene. Um, just imagining the horror of that situation for her. Because yeah. she like gets knocked out temporarily, and then when she cu- starts coming to, she's been dragged into what looks like... So she realizes what's about to happen, and then he's like stoning her to death. It's horrible. Yeah. I also thought, okay, so that gave me new information about this guy. Because it's hard to imagine, quote-unquote a normal dude that's having an affair that all of a sudden it's like, oh, you're pregnant. It's like, okay, fine, I'm a murderer and I'm going to, right. like with zero compunction, right. bash your head in and bury your body. And yeah. like, Whoa! Right. So there's lots of psychopathic clues that right. we can point to to diagnose Tom as a psychopath. Yeah. He manipulated that Machiavellian aspect that we talked about in other episodes. He lost his job due to an ability to contain his urges. Right. And he affairs were not a problem for him. Right. Lies compulsively. Right. He 
when when people are close to him, they they don't do so well. They don't feel close to him. You know, Rachel and him grow distant. Anna and him grow. They show like their distant sex and how it's not really working well. And 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 the you know cherry on top is that he you know, murdered somebody. And he felt he felt no connection to his baby. Right. I mean, it seems like he's like I'm going to use my baby as as like threat right now. Right. And um, manipulated very on purpose. Uh, the main Rachel's, Rachel's memories right. and everything. Yeah. Can you imagine that? All of that stuff. You know, that's yeah. that's that's pretty bad. So yeah, I, I would say absolutely psychopathic. In the movie, though, I liked how they made the murder scene. Not I liked the murder, but they made it seem more like a crime of passion. Mm-hmm. It started as a crime of passion, yeah. You because know, he they get in a scuffle, he pushes her, she falls, she hits her head. Right. So it's unclear if they hadn't gotten to a scuffle, if he would have killed her, what he would have done, yeah. right? And then once she's on the ground, then he's like, oh, okay, might as well finish it off, right? Yeah. Now, a normal person like you and me wouldn't would never do anything like that. That's, but but yeah. it's unclear if he would have murdered her uh, if if the situation hadn't gone that that way, right? That's right. There were there were two things that happened in that scene. One of them is um, when she's like, okay, you know, I'm pregnant, and he's like, oh, well, con- congratulations. He says something like, oh, great. And she's like, no, no, it might be yours, right? And he's like, oh, well, then you got to get an abortion. Like, there was um, no debate in his head. There's like only one reality we operate in, and it's right. everything that's beneficial to me. Right. And as soon as you cross that line, well, there's only one option. Right. And so it seemed the same with the push. He pushes her initially as just like, ah, oh, you're hitting me, fine. But then once he sees that she's hit her head, it, like, she might have been fine and we could have worked our way out of this or it could have been embarrassing but we would have eventually gotten him. instead he's like oh she hit her head okay well it's time to kill her right <laughs> like yeah there's a lot of other wow. options available <laughs> in that moment yeah yeah i mean for instance he could just get a divorce i mean him and anna weren't really getting along at the time so yeah he could get a divorce he could and, ha- have yeah. a child with anna and he could have a child with Megan, and you know, people do that. It's not, it's not the end of the world. You don't That's have to right. kill anyone. <laughs> and I don't know if they were trying to do it on purpose, but I definitely got when when she comes to the house and confronts him and stuff like that. Then I really thought, okay, he's he's absolutely a psychopath because he is he doesn't react. Yeah, he doesn't react. He's not like he's, yeah, he doesn't put his hands. Yeah, he's just know, like so. he's completely neutral. Yeah. Okay, so analysis of the memory, let's, let's end with that. So basically the science is that alcohol interferes with the hippocampus, which has to do with long-term memory formation. Mm-hmm. So your short-term, you have short-term memory and long-term memory, and these yeah. are different mechanisms of the brain. You know, your RAM and your, and your hard drive, right? That's right. And so when you are extremely drunk, particularly when you drink a lot very quickly, so research shows that it's not necessarily your blood alcohol level. It's the amount of time it took to get there. So if it's a very short amount of time to get to that high level, so if you binge drink, essentially, you're much more likely to have a hippocampus malfunction, mm-hmm. which makes it so that you can remember short-term memory things. So you're walking around, someone introduces themselves to you, and you remember their name five minutes later. But 
what happens is that the next day you don't remember any of those events. But they weren't recorded. They weren't recorded. So in the moment, you remember minute to minute, but they they don't pass the threshold into long term memory. So the memories are just never recorded. It's yeah. not like the memories are there and they're not accessible. Right. They're just they're just not there. So right. therefore, you can't through therapy particularly, right. <laughs> rem, you know, recover memories that you didn't form during a blackout. Now, right. there's different gradients of blackout. You can have what they call brownouts and these these kinds of things where you your your memory is is impaired. Uh, to a lesser degree where you can remember bits and pieces, but you don't remember yeah. everything. You can, I mean, you could make an argument that the that it's because she got her head hit that she forgot. You know, like you can make that argument. But, that but even tunnel, that kind of, well, but even that kind of memory loss is even less supported by science being hit on the head. And the, the hit on the head amnesia thing is is ridiculous. What every 80s show I know showed me how it works. What did I watch? Oh, I watched <laughs> Desperately Seeking Susan recently. <laughs> you mentioned that. Yeah. Um okay. So uh yeah, and so um another thought that people have is that it has to do with association, right? So it's like, oh, you just need to get drunk and then you remember those memories. It's, <laughs> it's, it's not true. You've heard that before, right? No, I haven't. Oh. That's awesome. Uh, it's debunked. Debunked by empirical like, Now, it might be an accurate portrayal of memory loss and recovery if it's not alcohol-induced. It's but like the, trauma. But, but trauma and associative. So if she was suffering from PTSD as a result of the DV that she went through or some even more distant past problem. And she has dissociative mechanisms in her brain to, to protect her from difficult memories. Then those memories are going into long-term memory banks, but you can't access them through dissociation and through therapy, you can recover them. And I've seen this happen. If they're not necessarily repressed to the point of unconscious, but the person will avoid the memories because they're too difficult. You know, this is a missed opportunity. I, I, I'm sure the the writer probably didn't know this fact about the drunk uh, memory stuff. But it is a missed opportunity because in the scene when uh, Phoebe is telling her, what? That's not what happened. Right. This is what happened. And she starts remembering. They show the scene of what actually happened, which I think the implication is that she starts remembering how it really happened. Right. So it would have been actually more powerful now that I think about it if maybe she's at the therapist's office and he's like, listen, and he's explaining, when you're on alcohol, you don't have those memories. You know, he's explaining this. Yeah. And so we as the audience don't get that resolution. Like it would be a lot more powerful if we kind of know what happened because Phoebe does say, no, that's not what happened. Right. But we don't get to see. Like right. we're just as confused as she is. Like, right. That would have been cool. Right. Instead of having the flashbacks to make it obvious to us what quote unquote really happened and imply that she's remembering it, it's yeah. all narratively told and, yeah. and they never flash back visually. And so we just like, well, was uh. the boss right? What, you know, who's right. Yeah. I think that's kind of how the book actually plays it because oh, okay. similar to gone girl, you have unreliable narratives. They call them anyway. Is alcoholism depicted accurately in this story? What do you think? Well, she is uh, definitely on a rut in a rut and she has moments where she is visibly intoxicated and, you know, she is uh, chaotic in the train and um, she is she's a mess. You know, um, what 
she even there's a scene where she like fills her water bottle with probably vodka or some other yeah, spirit vodka. and uh she seems not in control for sure um but they don't other than that stuff i didn't feel like the, well and then she she went to aa once you know they should but they, i i didn't feel like they showed enough of her problems like for example uh she seemed functional yeah like she seemed functional right she got on the train every day you know and yeah uh so I'm not sure how severe her alcoholism was, but yeah. she certainly was not functional to the point of being able to have a job. But it well, it sounded like it was severe because she was frequently blacking out. Well, that's true. Yeah. And so, you know, that's a lot of booze. And so I thought it was it was okay. It wasn't a bad depiction. I mean, as far as movies go, because yeah. it's not a movie about alcoholism. That's you true. Know? It's not like 48 Earth. What's that? Movie. Leaving Las Vegas. <laughs> yes, yeah, it's not like that, right? It's yeah. it's about it's an element, but it's not the main focus. But I thought it was a pretty good depiction of it. I will say that it's not usual to see a movie where the protagonist is a female who's an alcoholic, right? And how it's sort of pathetic. There was, I don't think there was ever a moment where it was like, "Oh, you go, girl, you drink." No, no, no. Right. It, no. It was, Even though it was Emily Blunt playing the character, right? It definitely was not glamorized, right? Not in the least. Right. All right. Well, that does it for that episode of Psychology in Seattle. Thanks for joining us. And please take care of yourself. And if you're going to be one of the dudes, if you're a dude out there, be an Andy. Come on. Be an Andy because you deserve it. Mm -hmm.